guys can turn to Exodus chapter 11. We're going to continue our movement through the book of Exodus this morning. Let me review for you just for a moment. We'll do a little Prince of Egypt style review. So just to catch you up on where we are, we met the Israelites at the beginning of the book of Exodus and they were enslaved in the nation of Egypt and it was cruel, it was oppressive. And so they cried out for God to deliver them. And so God raised up a deliverer, a man named Moses, who at 80 years old, God called in the burning bush to go and deliver his people from Egypt. So Moses went, but Pharaoh did not listen. And so God unleashed plagues upon the nation of Egypt. The Nile turned to blood. Frogs crawled out. We had gnats and flies and the death of livestock and massive hail and thunder and lightning. Nine plagues, and yet Pharaoh did not listen. He did not relent. And so God is going to send one final plague in this, the the finale of Exodus. That's where we are this morning. Now, when I say the finale of Exodus, I do not mean the, the finale of the book of Exodus. I mean the finale of the event called the Exodus. So if you ask a Jew, what is Exodus? They're probably not going to think about the book. They're going to think about the event, the Exodus from Egypt, this incredibly important thing that happened in the life of the nation of Israel. So this finale of the Exodus event, it comes in three parts. So I'm going to walk you through these three parts of this finale. So the first part of this finale is Israel is delivered from death. Let's pick that part of the story up in chapter 11. Look with me at chapter 11, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read a good bit of this story to you this morning because it's really exciting and amazing. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Moses, one more plague, a tenth plague, I will bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt. And after that, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out from here completely. Jump down to verse 4. Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I am going out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstones, all the firstborn of the cattle as well. Moreover, there shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt, such as there has not been before, and such as there never will be again. But against the sons of Israel, a dog will not even bark, whether against man or beast, that you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Jump down to chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households. A lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them. According to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the house in which they eat. Jump down to verse 11. Now you shall eat it in this manner with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. 
For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike down the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. When I see blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now jump down to verse 28. Then the sons of Israel went and did so. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Now it came about at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon. And all the firstborn of the cattle. Pharaoh arose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt for there was no home where there was not someone dead. Now, we don't know the exact details. We don't know if it's just firstborn males or firstborn daughters as well. We don't know if it was all generations of firstborns or just the youngest generation. What we do know is that it was an incredible amount of death. Every single Egyptian household had at least one dead person that night. So this is an incredibly sad plague. It's the, it's the harshest of all the plagues, but it is important for us to recognize, as harsh it is, as it is, there is some justice here. Because remember what the Egyptians had done for generations. They had sought to kill all Israelite boys, to throw them in the Nile. They had failed to kill all of them, but now their own curse falls upon them. And so for the Egyptians, there's a sense in which they earned this. But what should stand out to us is why is Israel delivered from this judgment. It's not because they're the good guys. That's important to get clear. We're going to see that. For like the rest of this semester, it's going to be pretty sad. We're going to see how bad Israel is. We're going to see their lack of faith. We're going to see their rebellion, their lack of obedience, their bitterness, their complaining, their fighting. We're going to see lots of sin on Israel's part. So this judgment doesn't come upon Egypt and pass over Israel because Egypt is the bad guys and Israel is the good guys. All of us are the bad guys. Paul tells us in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the remarkable thing in this account is not that God brings judgment on the Egyptians. They had earned that. It's that God delivers the Israelites. He sets them free from this curse of death. They are delivered from death. And finally, a plague has come that is so hard, that is so catastrophic that Pharaoh is willing to. To let the Israelites go. And that brings us to the next section of the finale of Exodus. Israel is delivered from slavery. So let's pick up the story in chapter 12 verse 31. This is the initial deliverance of the Israelites. Verse 31. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron at night and said, Rise up, get out from among my people, both you and the sons of Israel, and go. Worship the Lord as you have said. Take both your flocks and your herds as you have said and go and bless me also. The Egyptians urged the people to send them out of the land in haste for they said we will all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened with their kneading bowls bound up in the clothes on their shoulders. Now the sons of Israel had done according to the word of Moses for they had requested from the Egyptians articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have their request. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. 
Now the sons of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, aside from children. As best we can tell, the nation of Israel numbered about 2 million at this point. A mixed multitude, that is Egyptians and other racial groups, also went up with them along with flocks and herds, a very large number of livestock. They baked the dough which they had brought out of Egypt into cakes of unleavened bread. That means it doesn't have yeast and it hasn't risen. For it had not become leavened since they were driven out of Egypt and could not delay, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. Now, the time that the sons of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. And at the end of 430 years, to the very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. This is what the Israelites have been looking forward to. This is what they've been crying out for, that they've wanted for generations, freedom from Egypt, freedom from slavery. And so finally, Pharaoh is willing to let them go. God delivers them from slavery, but God doesn't want them to go empty-handed. And so God puts a, a fear, a reverence in the hearts of the Egyptians for the Israelites and their God. And so the Egyptians load them up with wealth. And again, there is a justice here. Because the Israelites had served as slaves without pay for generations. Now they are paid back by the Egyptians. And so they they get ready to leave the land in a a wealthy state. However, if you know where the story is going, Pharaoh is going to change his mind once more. So turn to chapter 14. It seems like we have reached the resolution of the story that Israel is finally going to go free, but you know that's not the case. Pick it up in chapter 14, verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people, that is Israel, had fled, Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart toward the people, and they said, what is this we have done? that we have let Israel go from serving us. So he made his chariot ready and took his people with him. And he took 600 select chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he chased after the sons of Israel as the sons of Israel were going out boldly. Then the Egyptians chased after them with all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and they overtook them camping by the sea beside Pihahirath in the land of Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt saying, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. So Pharaoh changes his mind, and it's primarily for economic motivations. He has just lost two million free laborers. That's a big hit on the Egyptian economy. And so he changes his mind and gathers his chariots to chase after them. And you may wonder, why does Moses spend so much time describing these chariots? Well, because in the ancient world, chariots were like the Abrams tanks of the day. An armed soldier on foot could not stand against a chariot. The Israelites have no chariots. And so what what the point is here is there's no hope. The Israelites are doomed. They're all going to be cut down on the plains against the Red Sea. They are absolutely desperate for God to deliver one more time. And you know that he does. You know where the story is going at this point. So let's pick it up in verse 13, the climax. Moses said to the people, Do not fear. 
Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. As for you, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. As for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots and his horsemen. The angel of God who had been going before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel and there was the cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus the one did not come near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land, so the waters were divided. The sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on dry land, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Then the Egyptians took up the pursuit, and all of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, his horsemen, went in after them into the midst of the sea. At the morning watch, the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve and he made them drive with difficulty. So the Egyptians said, let us flee from Israel, for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea. So that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. Then the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them. Not even one of them remained. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This is a powerful account, but, but it's hard at times to picture. It's, it's a lot of words here. So one of the best resources that I know of is actually a movie I quoted earlier this morning, Prince of Egypt. They do an amazingly good job capturing this scene and, and the emotion of it and the power of it. There's a couple little artistic liberties. I'll talk about those later, but they're so minor. This scene is an incredible capturing of the power and emotion of this moment. So I want to share it with you from the Prince of Egypt. So there's no evidence that there was a shark swimming next to them. And, and Moses is 80, so I don't think he quite looks that good. But with those couple exceptions, it's remarkably accurate from what I can tell. We're told that there literally were supernatural walls of water on their left and on their right. We're told that there was a pillar of cloud and fire that separated the Egyptians 
from the Israelites and held them back for a whole day. And we're told that when the Israelites had made it through and the Egyptians were chasing them, that the water climactically collapsed and wiped out all of the Egyptians. It's, it's an incredibly awe-inspiring moment. And, and it's, it's so awesome, in fact, that for the Jews, this moment becomes the, the picture or the pinnacle of salvation for them. If you were to ask a Jew in the Old Testament, what does salvation look like? This would be the answer. This event, the Exodus, when God supernaturally delivered us from our enemies. This was their moment of salvation. The the most important thing that had happened to them as a nation. It was incredible. And you would think that having seen something so amazing, so awesome, that they would never forget it. But you would be wrong. Because that's not how the human heart works. The human heart tends to take for granted and forget everything that's happened in the past. This is how we work. We're so caught up in the present that if we don't intentionally think about what happened in the past, we will take it for granted and we'll forget about it. That is why we as a nation celebrate July 4th. Have you ever thought about, in a sense, how silly it is to have a July 4th celebration? You live in the United States like every day of the year. You enjoy being a U.S. citizen, if you are, every day of the year. You're living out that privilege. Why do you need a day to remember something you enjoy every day? Well, because we so easily take it for granted and forget. We lose our appreciation of it. And so we need this this annual ceremony to remind us of how good we've got it. Well, God did the same thing for Israel. He knew that they would forget, that they would take it for granted. And so he created for them tools to help them remember his deliverance, to remember how good he had been to them. And so God gives them two tools to help them to remember in this passage. The first tool that God gives them to help them remember is a ceremony called Passover. So look with me, we're going to read about this ceremony of remembrance in chapter 13. Go back to chapter 13, we'll pick it up in verse 3. Chapter 13, verse 3. Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you went out from Egypt, from the house of slavery, for by a powerful hand the Lord brought you out from this place, and nothing leavened shall be eaten, nothing with with yeast in it. On this day in the month of Abib you are to go forth. It shall be when the Lord brings you to the land of the Canaanite, Hittite, Amorite, Hivite, and Jebusite, which which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall observe this rite in this month. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten throughout the seven days, and nothing leavened shall be seen among you, nor shall any leaven be seen among you in all your borders. You shall tell your son on that day, saying, It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall serve as a sign to you on your hand and as a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a powerful hand the Lord brought you out of Egypt. Therefore you shall keep this ordinance at its appointed time from year to year. This ordinance is a Passover. 
It's an annual celebration that Jews still celebrate today. 3,500 years later, observant Jews still celebrate Passover. It lasts for seven days, but the big Passover feast is the final day. It's celebrated in spring around the time we typically celebrate Easter. Passover is is a beautiful ceremony with a lot of rules and rites as part of it. You're reading about one of them here, this whole thing about leavened versus unleavened bread. God commands it during the Passover celebration, all bread in the house must be unleavened, meaning it has no yeast in it, to remind them that God moved quickly. That God quickly and powerfully delivered them from Egypt so quickly, in fact, that they didn't have time to let their bread rise before they baked it. So the Passover ceremony is filled with these beautiful remembrances of what God did. So every year the Jews were to gather and celebrate this, this Passover ceremony to help them remember. The first tool God gives them to remember is a ceremony called Passover. The second thing God gives them to help them remember is a song. It's called the Song of Moses. Turn to chapter 15. Chapter 15. Uh, There's actually very few songs recorded in your Bible outside the book of Psalms. Psalms is all songs. But outside of that... There's only a few places where you'll see a song recorded, and and when it is, it's telling you it's very significant. This was a very important song in the history of Israel. They knew this song. They sang it. It became one of their core um, foundations of worship as a nation. So let's just read a little bit of this song of Moses. I will not sing it because I cannot sing it. It would also have tambourines playing. I don't know how to play those. So just imagine it. It's amazing. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song and he has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will extol him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Jump down to verse 11. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. In your loving kindness, you have led the people whom you have redeemed. In your strength, you have guided them to your holy habitation. This song, it it captures God's power and his goodness and his faithfulness and his deliverance. And, And Moses sings it and they memorize it and they sung it to one another for generations to remind them of how good God is. So at this point, we have to ask ourselves, this is all fun, but what does it have to do with us? I'm not Jewish. As best I can tell, my ethnicity is part British, part Scottish. And the point of telling you that is God didn't do any magic water walls for Brits or Scots. So I don't have that to celebrate. Uh, Being British and Scottish, I also am not a Jew, so I don't celebrate Passover. So what does this have to do with us? Well, here we are in the church as followers of Jesus. We need to remind ourselves that we also have been delivered from slavery and death. Just as God delivered the Israelites from slavery and death, so he has delivered us. Now, you might ask, well, what slavery? What death? I'm not dead and I'm not a slave. Well, actually, Ephesians 2, Paul tells us, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. 
following the prince of the power of the air that is Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. When Paul says that you were dead in sins and trespasses, he's talking about slavery. You were a slave of sin, meaning you could not help but sin. And as a result of that, of that slavery to sin, you earned wrath. You, you deserve punishment from God, eternal death from God. But you have been delivered from slavery and death. How were you delivered? Well, you were delivered by the best and most perfect Passover lamb there has ever been. That's Jesus. And I, I don't know if you ever thought about Jesus, whom you worship on Sunday mornings, through the grid of Passover, that event that happened 3,500 years ago. But the New Testament directly connects them. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Part of the reason for that whole crazy Passover thing with the lambs and the blood on the doorposts back in the Old Testament was to teach and prepare us to recognize what Jesus would do in the New Testament. Jesus is our new and better Passover lamb. Because of Jesus and his blood in our lives, God's punishment passes over us just as it passed over the houses of the Israelites who painted their doorposts with blood. So Christ is our Passover lamb. John 1.29, the next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is, is not just the Passover lamb for the Jews. He's the Passover lamb for the entire world. He's, he's so much better of a sacrifice. You think back to what happened 3,500 years ago. Every single household had to have a lamb. One lamb covered one house. Jesus isn't like that. His single sacrifice covers all of humanity for all time. He took and paid for all sins ever committed. So, so in a sense, he's the infinite Passover lamb. You don't need any more. You don't need any others. His death was enough to pay for all sin. Now, very similar to those Passover lambs in the Old Testament, Jesus had to be spotless. You remember in the Passover, the, the Israelites had to inspect their lambs. They had to look for any blemishes, any defects in the lamb. So it is for Jesus. We're told in 1 Peter 1, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. That's slavery to sin and death. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Again, the Old Testament taught and prepared us for the new. So in the Old Testament, every sacrifice offered to God had to be perfect. Now, now lambs don't have sin. There's no sin or righteousness in a lamb. So it was about physical perfection. You were looking for defects or spots or disease. In the New Testament, we're told that actually Jesus takes that to the next level. He was perfect in every way. That's why he had to die for us, because he's the one and only human being to ever live a perfectly righteous life. He never gave in to sin. He never gave in to selfishness. He never gave in to pride. And as a result, he is our perfect spotless lamb. So he's the fulfillment of what all those lambs sacrificed in the Old Testament taught us about, what they prepared us for. But there's one sense in which Jesus is very much not like those lambs in the Old Testament. They were helpless victims. Those lambs didn't like it to pick. 
with a, hey, please kill me and paint my blood over your doorpost. They had no part in that, but Jesus did. He is the one and only Passover lamb who got to choose his fate. We're told in Ephesians chapter 5, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. No one forced Jesus to go to the cross. No one compelled him there. He was not helpless. He chose the cross. He chose the nails. He chose the suffering and the punishment. Why? You're told right there in the verse, love for you. He is the one and only Passover lamb who got to choose his fate, and he chose to die out of love for you. So Jesus died in in our place as our Passover lamb, purchasing freedom from sin and death for us. Now, what must we do to take advantage of of that freedom from slavery and death? Well, think about the Israelites. What did they have to do to take advantage of the Passover that God had provided? They had to trust. They had to trust that the blood of this lamb will protect me. They they had to trust God and walk through the parted sea. They had to to trust that God would hold up the water and preserve them. So it is for us. We have to trust. We have to trust that Jesus really did live, really did die for us, really did rise from the dead. We have to trust that his death is enough to pay for our sins. We have to trust that he's done all the work so that we can have eternal life as a free gift. I hope that for everyone here today that there's been some moment in your life where you've chosen to trust Jesus. That very simply that you've, you've said to God, I, I trust that your son's death and resurrection is the complete payment you require for all my sins. I trust that Jesus' death and resurrection has earned me forgiveness and eternal life as a free gift. If there's something that's held you back, from trusting Jesus, I want to invite you to come talk to me or or anyone else here today. You can find a staff person. They're wearing the name tags. Come talk to someone today. We would love to share with you why we have come to trust that Jesus really is our Savior. For all of us who've trusted in Jesus as our Savior, who've been freed from slavery and death, God now knows that we're going to take that for granted just like Israel did. Because we live in it every day. I have forgiveness today. I had it yesterday, I had the day before, I had the day before. So because I live in it, I tend to take it for granted and not think about it. I forget how magnificent it is. God knew we would do that. And so just as he did for Israel, he gives us tools to help us to remember. Okay, so just like he did for Israel, God is going to give us a ceremony and actually many songs to help us remember the deliverance that Jesus purchased for us. So what is the ceremony God has given us? Well, that's communion. Communion is our new Passover. So turn to Luke chapter 22 as the men head back to prepare communion, which we're going to take together here in a moment. Luke chapter 22 is the institution of communion. This is when it began. So when is Passover replaced by communion for the family of God? It's right here in Luke chapter 22. Jesus is going to speak on the last night before his crucifixion. He is actually at Passover, the Jewish Passover, celebrating it with his disciples. And in the midst of that Passover meal, he gives us this new ceremony for us to celebrate called communion. So Luke 22, let's start in verse 14. 
When the hour had come, Jesus reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves, for I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God come. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood. It's a very simple ceremony. It doesn't have all the rules and regulations about yeast and flour and all of that. It's just two things. You're going to take bread and you're going to take a cup and you're going to remember what they, what they symbolize, that Jesus shed his blood and willingly chose to let his body be broken as payment for our sins. That's communion. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We don't have specifics about how often we have to do it. In the very early history of the church, they actually did it every single day. Later in the book of Acts, they transition to about once a week. For us, we do it about once a month to keep it fresh so that we remember it. However often you do it, the goal is simple. When you take that little piece of bread and you drink from the little cup, that is an act of remembrance. You need to remember what Jesus did for you on the cross and in the grave. That is what God calls you to do. So right now what we're going to do is pass the elements. Guys, if you'll start doing that. As the elements are passed, I want you to take this time to do exactly what God is commanding you to do. Remember. Simply give thanks to Jesus that he took all of your sin and died in your place on the cross and rose from the dead for you. Okay, so take this time to remember what Jesus did. When Jesus had given thanks, he broke the bread and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, this morning we want to remember that you gave your life for us. We want to remember that you didn't have to do that. Lord Jesus, this morning we remember that you are God. You are the creator. You are almighty. You are sovereign. You know all things. You need nothing from us. We remember that. And we remember this morning, Lord Jesus, that that you chose to, to take on human flesh, but unlike us, you lived a perfectly sinless life. You always chose obedience and love and righteousness. You were so good. You did not deserve to die. We remember that. This morning, Lord Jesus, we remember that you freely chose the cross. No one forced you to go there. But out of love for us, you chose to take our place. You took all of our sins upon yourself and died for us. And this morning, Lord Jesus, we remember that death could not hold you down, that you rose victorious from the dead three days 
later. And this morning we remember that the life and the forgiveness that you earned through your death and resurrection, you have now offered it to all of us as a free gift. You do not charge us. You do not make us work for it. You freely give it. We praise you for that. We remember that. Lord Jesus. And this morning we remember that you have not left us alone, that you are with us, that you have filled us with your spirit, that you have given us this family to do life with. We remember how good you are to us, Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, this morning we remember you through this ceremony of communion. We thank you for this gift that helps us to remember and and to appreciate how good you are. May this please and delight you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. God has given us a ceremony called communion. He's also given us songs, many of them. We sing songs of worship to remember. That's what worship is about. It's not just about singing catchy songs that make us feel good. It's about an act of intentional remembrance. We are reminding one another of how good God is. And so the band is going to lead us through two songs of remembrance. And there's millions we could have picked from, but the two that we chose for you to remember this morning, the first is an old one called Nothing But the Blood. And it will help us to remember that there was literally nothing we could do to save ourselves. We were like Israel caught on the banks of the Red Sea with Pharaoh's chariots coming. We had no hope until Jesus shed his blood. The one thing that could save us from sin and death. We're going to remember that through Jesus' blood and sacrifice we have forgiveness in life. And then the band is going to lead us back through the song they introduced us to this morning. Behold the Lamb. And you may recall we sang lifted up on Calvary's hill. We cursed your name and even still you bore our shame and paid the cost. Oh God, we thank you for the cross. We're going to remember that Jesus took our sin, our guilt, our shame upon himself and died in our place. We're going to give thanks for the cross. So if you'll stand, let's remember together through worship.